Um, so we're reading the whole of John chapter 2, which is 25 verses long. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This... The first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men, steal found men selling cattle sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of there! Get out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market! His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while, we are, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, the tone of this passage today is, um, it's a little bit mixed because on the first part we've got the wedding and that's a bit of a celebratory time uh, and then the second part we have the cleansing of the temple and that gets a bit more serious. So it's sort of, it's a little bit of a juggling act to get the tone right for this sermon. But one of the common threads in it is talking about signs that, that crops up throughout this passage. So that's why I've given the heading, Jesus gives us some signs for the times, that rhymes a bit. So we're going to give our attention to the signs this morning. 
I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and hope you can stick with me. Let's come before our Lord in prayer. Our Lord, we do thank you for giving us your word that guides us uh, for our lives. And we pray that you'd help us to grow stronger uh, with our faith in you because of uh, getting to know Jesus more and more through this word. Thank you for this time we share together now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how good are you at uh, picking up the signs from time to time when I've been uh, driving around the place looking for a particular destination? I realise that I'm, I'm busy trying to find the street names and, and where I've got to go and I find that there's times when I, I forget what the speed limit is. Have you ever done that? You're kind of busy concentrating on one thing and I have to ask the people in the car around me, does anyone know what the speed limit is here? Joanne, do you know how fast we're supposed to be going? And uh, that's when uh, we kind of realise that we've got to be attending to the signs. It's pretty important to follow the signs so we don't get into strife. I saw a similar thing happen like that where things got a bit more serious. In, uh, it's actually in a, in a comedy show called National Lampoon's Vacation where that buffoon Chevy Chase is driving the family truckster across the nation to a Wally world and of course... One of the kids says to him, Dad, didn't we just have a sign back there that said this road is closed? And of course, Chevy says to his daughter, oh, I don't think so. Of course not. If they're going to have a sign, sign saying something like that, they'd make it clear. And then he says with terror in his voice, like this one. And with that, the car blasts through a road closed sign and they drive off an embankment. And so we see even in uh, crazy slapstick comedy shows, Failure to pick up on the obvious signs uh, gets a look in. And so we've got to remember to heed the signs. Well, that's where we're at in John's Gospel today. Jesus gives us some signs. They're given to the people of his age. They're given to the disciples around him. But they're given to us as well. And they're given to us for our benefit so that we get to know Jesus better and that we've got a firm foundation for our faith. Now, the context for the passage today uh, is the little section before it where we get a number of names that are attributed to Jesus. Did you notice that? If you were here last week, Scott would have preached on each of those names. Uh, Jesus gets called various things, the Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, and Son of Man. Now, all these names are loaded with meaning, but as the people are getting acquainted with Jesus at the very start, they're still coming to understand what, what that actually means in practice. They're still getting a handle on the true meaning of all those names attributed to Jesus. And so in the next passage, which is today's, we start to see Jesus fill out the meaning of some of those things. Well, Jesus starts to show himself and make himself known. And if this was a movie now, uh, we'd be scanning away from where they'd spent some time with um, John the Baptist and baptising and moving north and the camera would pan in on a, on a wedding feast, a good time. And so that's what we see. A wedding is a special time, we all know that. Uh, and it's a big deal because people have come from everywhere to be at this wedding. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, Mary, they're there. Uh, but at this wedding, this is where, if it was the movie once again, we'd have some uh, music that reflects that there's a problem because the problem is that they've run out of wine. 
And uh, we learn from verse 10 that the person supplying the wine is supposed to be the groom. And uh, so he's now officially in strife. He's hardly been married and he's already in strife. And so there's an expectation from the guests that there would be um, pretty good catering at a wedding, uh, plenty of wine flowing. And as they say, it's all started to go pear-shaped. What was supposed to be a great party is really now under threat. And when you've had these sort of situations, these catering moments that start to, you know, go a bit bad, you realise there's no ice or there's not some drinks, there's a feeling of foreboding that comes over. There becomes a time where things start to get a little bit tense, don't they? And people start to uh, lean on each other a bit more for help. These are, are serious times and there's no joking around that's going on. It's as we've got to sort this crisis out. And so Mary has probably been used to relying on Jesus for some time now. I think, uh, you know, I feel like it's pretty good at my place when somebody else cooks the barbecue. I've got some sons who seem to step up to the mark for that. This is pretty good. But Jesus would take it to another level, uh, Ross and David. Uh, he would be the, the, the son to have around, especially... Um, when there is a crisis. And so Mary comes to Jesus about this problem. And the, uh, the Greek is fairly uh, blunt. The, the original, it says, uh, what is that to me and to you, woman? That's, that's what, it, what it says. What is that to you, me and what's that to you, woman? And so we see that uh, Mary's going to Jesus for help. But Jesus is courteous, but he gives her a rebuff. He's putting some uh, distance between him and Mary, and she's learning that she has no real claim on him. There's no, there's no inside track where she can start to set the agenda for his ministry. And so it must have been hard for Mary to come to terms with Jesus, um, I guess, putting that kind of distance and realising that she's got to come to him in the way that everybody's got to come to him. Well, his follow-up response is a little bit curious probably for her to understand and it, and it sets us as the readers wondering as well. He says, my time, literally my hour, has not yet come. And so it leaves us wondering, doesn't it, uh, what is this hour, what is this time, what's he referring to? And when is this hour supposed to come? Well, if we've been good readers of John's Gospel, we know that the hour does come, and it comes around uh, halfway through the book in chapter 12, where you read, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And at that point in the book forward, we, we start to see the passion narrative of Jesus, where he's, he's handed over and he suffers for sins. He dies on the cross for sins, and later he's glorified, rising three days later. But at this point in the story, at the start, that hour has not yet come. It's not yet the time for Jesus to have dealt with the sins of the world. It's not yet time for God to restore order and have the kingdom come in all its fullness. That time of complete restoration after the glorification of Jesus has not yet come. For now... This is the time for problems. It's the time for problems like weddings that run out of wine. It's the time for catching colds, losing sleep, to have some worry and stress. This is the time or the age 
for problems between people around weddings, trying to get relatives to get on with each other, Christmas time to try to help people get by with each other. And that's to say nothing of um, this is the time for great, great hardship. A number of people around Australia are suffering because they're losing their houses and many people are suffering through problems like drought. Running out of um, wine at a wedding is a big problem at a wedding, but there are some bigger problems than that. And this is the time or the age, if you like, for problems. But it wasn't yet Jesus' time to solve all the world's problems. It wasn't yet Jesus' time to bring in the restored time of the end of the ages there and then. Jesus rebuffs Mary, but Mary seems to accept his uh, dismissing of her. And she turns to the servants and gives them a brief, lets them know that they should be doing whatever Jesus says to do. And then John now gives us some information. He gives us some information about the setting. And we find that right on cue, there are six stone water jars. They're holding 75 to 115 litres each. And there's six of them, so that's around 600 litres. That's a, that's a lot of um, water. In fact, it's more than we have for the, the cordial on carols on the lawn. So this is looking like things could be getting better. And we do know the story, don't we? We know that uh, Jesus does something special in the present. He gives us a bit of a, a taste of heaven, a moment of the order of heaven that starts to break in on the chaos of a fallen world. And Jesus starts to solve a problem. He gives us a taste of the the goodness of a restored age to come. Well, the servants uh, go and fill the jars to the top with water and they draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This might be also known as the, the MC. Uh, people are smiling at this fly that's about to buzz my head. It likes me. There we go. Uh, and we know what's happened. The master of the ceremony, he may not even be aware that the... Um, the <laughs> Sorry about that. I've got to get away from this fly and back onto the good story. Uh, the master of the ceremonies might not even be aware that uh, they've run out of wine. And then, of course, he, um, the, this, these uh, servants, they know what's happened. They've gone to the well to get the water and, and they know what's happening. And, of course, as the readers, we know what's going on. But the master of the ceremonies, the MC, uh, he's still in the dark and he has a drink. This is where the happy music would begin to play. And he says to the bridegroom, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the inferior, inferior wine after the guests have had too much to drink, after they're inebriated. But you have saved the best until now. Jesus gives them the best wine and he's not stingy. He lavishes it upon them. There's 600 litres of the best that's come out now. And so what are we to make of these words? Is there more meaning in that clause? But you have saved the best until now. Do you think there's more meaning in that? Well, I think there is. Because Jesus is uh, using miracles and situations to, in some ways, provide commentary on, on what he's doing. And he was very familiar with the Old Testament. And some of the Old Testament look forward to the time of the blessing of when the Messiah would come and, the, and the, uh, the good things that would come at the end of the ages of God's blessing. 
And if we turn back to the Old Testament, you don't have to do this now, but I'll read out a section from Amos chapter 9. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman. There's just so much to gather. He's still gathering it in when it's time to plough again. And the planter by the one treading out the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow back from the hills. And so this is a, an expectation that after the exile, there's going to be a time of God's blessing, a time of restoration. And it's cast in terms where they can see there's so much agricultural production happening, God is really blessing them. And Jesus gives us a taste of that happening as he comes, as he is the Messiah. This moment of uh, water turned into wine signifies he's the coming, in, coming king to bring in the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 11, uh, John says, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Through his ministry, the disciples witness something of the glory of Jesus in that moment. Uh, they pick up on the signs and they realise that Jesus is worth following. And we should be picking up on these signs too and realising that we can have faith in him too. That's on a, a firm foundation. The prophet Amos looked forward to the restoration of the people of God. But at this point in time in Israel's history, things are compromised. They still have uh, Roman occupation. And Jesus gives us a taste of the restoration that will be complete at the end. In fact, the uh, end times uh, used by Jesus uh, compared to uh, a wedding feast. In, in Matthew's Gospel, there's a number of parables in chapter 22 and 25 where the kingdom of God's compared to being a time like a wedding feast. And so that's, that's what we're looking forward to at the end. And we learn that Jesus does bring uh, that time in uh, when he comes to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, where he comes as the suffering servant and lays down his life for us. And he reminds his disciples in chapter 14 that he promises to take them to be with him in that kingdom. Into that time when sorrows and hardships and frustrations of this time will be a thing of the past. And we still await that end time celebration, don't we? We still experience now, even if our houses per se aren't going up in flames, we still experience frustrations of this age and we still are given these words of encouragement this morning to see that if Jesus has brought the, the order of heaven in on the present and an end of frustrations in a taste of turning water into wine, he's got the resolve to have continued to serve and he, he will bring in the kingdom of God at the end. And so we're encouraged to be those who uh, keep our faith in Jesus, who um, will return and take us to be with him in the kingdom of God at the end as well, even, even though this age can be an age of frustrations. Well, Jesus now turns in the next section and turns his attention to Jerusalem and he finds himself in dispute with some of the leaders there as well and he speaks about another sign that's one of the common threads running through these passages and the sign that he speaks about is the promise of a new temple 
at Passover time, the people went up to uh, Jerusalem to sacrifice, celebrate the Passover, and they had a week-long feast to, of the unleavened bread where they, where they ate together. The temple had various courts, and it was to reflect something of uh, God's name amongst them, but also the distance that they, they could not just presume to approach God. And so there was the Holy of Holies, which was, a, in a sense, a, a visual aid of the heavenly realities of God's throne room. And then you had the outer courts. And one of the outer courts was the court of the Gentiles. There were times when... Um, they would bring the livestock to be sacrificed and, and take it to places like just out of the temple area, the Mount of Olives, and that's where they would have the, the sheep and the cattle and they would be ready for sacrifice there. But there is, a, again, there's another problem in this story and it's the fact that the livestock seems to have come into the court of the Gentiles um, and there's people who are changing money there to make sure they've got the right coin. And so what we see is uh, Jesus is unhappy with this situation, what was supposed to be a place of prayer for people to give their attention to the Lord. They can hear the bleating of sheep and the mooing of cattle amongst the sound of coins and other commerce. And so Jesus has some force. Uh, he pulls together some cords to drive out the cattle and it lets the money changers know that this is not on. In verse 16, we read, To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his response uh, reflects David's concern. In Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is concerned about God's house and God's name. And so what do we learn about Jesus in this section? The tone changes a little bit from uh, the, the joyful moment of water into wine. Do we see Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Now, as a little kid, I used to uh, have get put to bed by my dad and he would sit there and try to sing with a high voice, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And I thought that was quite nice and toddled off to sleep. And I kind of had that image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but that's not exactly what we see here in this passage. We see something of the strength of Jesus. We see some of his resolve. He does not have peace at all costs, does he? He's not, he's not weak-willed. He takes a stand on principle. He's concerned about the spirit of what the, the temple stood for, the, the presence of God amongst his people, a place where people could maintain their relationship with God uh, by means of the sacrificial system that God had instituted. That's how they were to deal with their sin. But things had gotten out of hand and people had lost their way. And we can say that, in a sense, uh, by Jesus sort of making a comment about these, this livestock there and the money changes, turning it into a, a marketplace, he lifts the lid on, on how things have become a mess. And some who uh, took umbrage at what Jesus did go and ask him for a sign of his authority to do these things. 
Well, I suppose they could have picked up on the fact that what he was doing by clearing the temple does give them a sign, doesn't it? And uh, they could have reflected on um, how they've lost their way. And instead, they, they want to uh, take issue with Jesus. And so he, he gives them a sign. He tells them about a, a sign in verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. There's a sign for you. Well, they respond by saying that this is uh, unrealistic. That's the summary of what they say. It's interesting to note that this um, temple that was being uh, rebuilt by Herod the Great, uh, it had been, the building project had been on the boil for some time. Uh, and even while they were having this conversation, the building was still under construction. In fact, it keeps being under construction until around, uh, around 66 or 67 AD. But the irony of that is... Um, it gets completely demolished in, 60, in 70 AD. So they're all sort of pretty keen on their temple, but Jesus is saying that they've, they've actually uh, they've missed the point that this temple is only a shadow of, of a greater reality of God's presence. And that's what the uh, disciples come to understand as well at the end of Jesus' life. They, they join the dots uh, and they can understand what Jesus is talking about, God's presence and Jesus being the temple. In verse 21 we read, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so they were talking at cross purposes. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he'd said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so even as Jesus speaks now, we see that he's no ordinary man. These words about Jesus referring to himself as uh, raising this temple accord well, don't they, with chapter 1, verse 14, where it talks about he tabernacled among them. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the dwelling words, the tabernacle word. That's the, that's the tent of God's presence before the temple was built. And Jesus was truly the presence of God amongst his people. And the physical temple was only a shadow of that reality. In fact, Jesus' um, sacrifice even goes and makes the temple redundant as well. Those, those sacrifices were offered year on year, but they couldn't take away sins. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, and it makes the temple redundant. And so Jesus brings an end to holy times and holy spaces. And that's what we see a bit of in uh, chapter 4 in John's Gospel. When Jesus talks with the woman from Samaria, there's a discussion about where the right place to worship God is, whether it's in Mount Gerizim, up in Israel, or in Jerusalem. And Jesus says the time's coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and and in truth. And so Jesus is offering this sign of um, being raised from the dead as, as showing that he is, he is the true temple. He's God's presence amongst his people. And as we come to know Jesus, we come near to God. Uh, coming to near, near to God is not bound up with uh, walking into a 1960s building like this one. I'm pretty grateful for this building, by the way. It's good uh, to keep me from being sunburnt. It's good when it's um, pretty windy and rainy. 
But this building is, is more of a rain shelter. This is not the temple of God. Uh, this is just a building. And we're reminded that coming near to God is not about entering this building. It's about coming to know Jesus. And that's what John reminds us of in John chapter 3 when he says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. The point here is if we want to know life with God, we come to know Jesus. We come to know the presence of God in Jesus. That's how we enjoy drawing near to God. It's not by walking into a a particular building. Well, in the final section, we notice that during this um, feast of the the Passover and, and the feast of the unleavened bread that goes with it, Uh, There's all kinds of people who start to see different signs of Jesus and some of them believed. It's it's an interesting little part. John doesn't list all the signs. They they get a bit of a look in but he he gives us, you know, this is sign number one and sign number two comes a little later and then he leaves us to trace the signs ourselves. But here, people see the signs. We'll pick that up in verse 23 if you're reading along there. Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Okay, so far so good. This seems to be good news. People believe, they trust him as Lord, they, they're learning from the signs. But in the following verses, we, we read that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them for he knew what was in a man. He doesn't entrust himself to them. And this might be a way of saying that some people just had a, a phony faith from the signs. Their belief was just a a spurious one. It wasn't genuine. They might have seen the signs and just had a belief that's hollow, that doesn't really last. And it reminds us of of passages like the parable of the soul where the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that he's Lord and Saviour gets cast out to all kinds of people. They can hear it uh, and some think it's great and then it disappears straight away. Some think it's great, but then when they sort of find some persecution, it it doesn't last and they don't stand the test of time. And these people might have been in that boat. Yet some people do take Jesus seriously. Some people do come to terms with the signs that he's performed to show his authority and who he is. They're not like me when I'm driving the car and I'm sort of disoriented and thinking about where I've got to go and forget to look at the street signs, some people pick up on the signs. They know that they need to heed what they've got to say. If you, if you don't follow the signs and do what they say, you end up in strife when you're driving. You end up driving over the speed limit and getting into trouble. Well, the signs are here for us to, to understand who Jesus is and to put our faith in him. And if we don't pick up on the signs, then we find we're in strife with God and we need to, we need to pick up on these signs so that we get forgiven and enjoy life with him and although some people didn't believe we know that other people do don't we even today we probably all know stories of families and and friends who uh, get tired of running away from God and want to experience the joy and the comfort that goes with getting right with God having their sins forgiven no longer facing God's judgment and wrath to come for sin but instead enjoying the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. We know some of those stories. In fact, I had a friend who came over just recently from Western Australia and he told us a story about 
how he'd been praying for his mother for some years and his, his father had come to Christ a little later in life. And even more recently, his mother had just come and had a conversation with him said, yeah, I've, I've actually come to believe these things. And uh, she professed her faith and got baptised. And it was, uh, it's wonderful to think that people can still heed the signs and come to a living faith in Jesus even today. Well, in this um, passage we've seen today, Jesus offers uh, some signs of who he is and his authority. He's the one through his hour of glorification and suffering, uh, through being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, promises to bring in God's restoration and the good age, like a, a wedding feast at the end of the ages to come. Jesus has shown us a taste of that, an entree of that, at the um, wedding at Cana at, Gal- Cana at Galilee, where he's, he's given us a little taste of that, uh, the order of heaven breaking in on the present. And Jesus has had the resolve to be the one who suffers, to bring in the kingdom at the end. We've come to see that Jesus is uh, God's presence amongst his people. He's the, the true temple of God, not, not a shadow of that reality. And we've seen that some people have been able to pick up on these signs, see the common thread and put their faith in Jesus and have a living trust in him. And so may God help us to be among those who, who do uh, pick up on the signs and, and also continue, uh, like some of those first disciples, to see something of the glory of Jesus uh, and to continue with our faith in him as our Lord and Saviour too. Let us close in a word of prayer and ask God to help us to persevere in that. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for uh, this passage today which reminds us about Jesus who has, um, through his suffering, uh, brought in forgiveness of sins and the promise of a restored age at the end. And Lord, we thank you that we see something of his glory even in this uh, miraculous time where he's turned water into wine. Lord, we give you thanks that as we uh, come to faith in Jesus, Uh, and we have the Son, we have life with you and and don't have to face your wrath against our sin. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be among those who continue to recognise these signs that Jesus has performed and have our faith in him both now and for the rest of our days. Help us to persevere with our faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And we pray for these these things in his name. Amen.